Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to 3. I'm Gil Gross, joined as always by Amy Lundy. But on this week's episode, we have special guest Simon Cambers, a renowned journalist in the sport and someone who's uh, just worked very, very hard on a Roger Federer piece as Indian Wells begins and none of our big three are participating. We thought this would be a great time uh, to talk about Roger and through the lens of 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 what Simon has done with uh, with his latest work the Roger Federer effect, which is uh, just released in the United States. So Simon, uh, congratulations on that. And uh, we appreciate you joining us. Well, thank you. And, and thanks for having me. It's great to, uh, great to be on and, and lovely to talk about Roger Federer. Yeah, and we'll also get to some Indian Well stuff uh, towards the end. And uh, Goran Ivanisevic just did an inter- interview. I don't know if uh, we've we've taken in that. Uh, I believe Simon, you do some work with with tennis majors, so you might have been on to that one as well. Yeah, I do. I, I've seen that. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Uh, I will ask the obligatory question to an author. And by the way, you, you also did it with with Simon Graff, or unless. Unless he goes by Simone, I'm not sure. It, yeah, well, uh, I, both, I, I think he goes by both. Simone okay. in his own country in Switzerland, but Simon elsewhere. Probably. Perfect, perfect. Uh, the obligatory question to an offer, author would be, uh, why did you choose to write this? Like, how did that come about? And also what I'll say is it's not a typical biography. It kind of works as one, but it, it's not from the kind of 50,000-foot view of a biographer. It's also not from Roger Federer's view it's from the perspective of the people in Roger's uh, life who he affected and touched in certain ways. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, as you know, there are a lot of books about Roger Federer out there. So trying to write another one of the same kind would have been a bit pointless, really, and I don't think it would have worked. Um, but Simon Graf came to me because um, he'd had a thought uh, a few years ago when he was in the queue at Wimbledon and was talking to people about you know, what he was doing there. And, and they were telling him that they were there basically to see Roger Federer. It wasn't to see Wimbledon, it was just to come and see Federer. And it struck him that, you know, so many people from all different walks of life were drawn to him for whatever reason, not just because of his uh, tennis and the way he played his tennis, but um, for other reasons too, his personality or how he went about things, uh, what he said and how he acted. So. Simon came to me and asked if I would like to co-write it because we, I think, you know, together we had a good spread of uh, contacts across the tennis world and then ideas about how it might work uh, in terms of contacting other people, not necessarily in tennis, but connected to tennis in different ways. So we had uh, musicians, we had uh, politicians, we had uh, film directors, we've got photographers, we spoke to Mary Carrillo as a commentator about what it's like to commentate on uh, Roger Federer. And we tried to get a sort of an overall view. As you said, it's not a chronological biography. It's not a, it's not a straight, it doesn't encompass all his wins and losses and high points and low points, but it tries to tell his story through the eyes of those whose lives he impacted. And 
uh, I hope we did a good job. There were people we couldn't get and there were areas that we couldn't get to, but um, I, I really enjoyed writing it. And I know Simon did too, because it was, everyone loved to talk about Roger. That's the first thing, you know, people were very happy to talk about him, um, but they all had interesting angles on it too. It wasn't just a sort of Roger's great book, although there, of course there's a lot of that because he, because he did uh, such a lot of good things in the sport, but there's a, there are a lot of different things in it. So I, I hope people have enjoyed it, who've read it uh, so far. And if not, we'll go out and buy it and read it and enjoy it too. Simon, uh, great to finally talk to you, by the way. Um, I love the way that you structured the book. I, I think it's a different way to do it. And I'm definitely drawn to just the overall structure because I feel like I know the story. I've read the story chronologically or the, the biography of Roger Federer. My question would be, it's hard to get anyone to say anything not negative, but kind of with an edge about Roger Federer. I mean, in many ways, he's got a halo over his head in all aspects of his life. Did you have a hard time really digging out the the golden nuggets to try to um, paint a picture that wasn't just all positive? Yeah, it's a good question. It's, it's funny, just to go back to the structure for a second, uh, that took us quite a while because, you know, we didn't want it to just be a collection of interviews shoved together because that would be a bit simple and maybe would sort of go up and down and come back around. We tried to get a structure where we would put it, you know, as you, as you said, with the, 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 if the effect he had on people, but it was through their eyes. So whether he was a student or whether he was a peer or a rival, et cetera. And, you know, it's great to hear that you like, you like that. Yeah, on the edge, the, one of the first people I spoke to was uh, Sergei Stakovsky. Uh, the Ukrainian player, not playing anymore, of course, and is now fighting in Ukraine, which is just unbelievable. Um, but I, I spoke to Sergei because I, I've known him a little bit on, over the years, and I knew what kind of person he is. He's outspoken. He's not afraid to be different and be difficult. And I thought, well, no, this will be interesting. Let's start with someone who might have a, a different tack on Roger. Obviously, beat him at Wimbledon in uh, 2013. And that was his, the biggest moment of his career. But I, I wondered whether, I thought, well, you know, he'll probably dish a bit of dirt and say Federer was a bit of a pain behind the scenes and this stuff. And out comes all the stuff about how Federer was lovely to his mom and, you know, how he set the scene. And working with him behind the scenes was great because they helped uh, to improve prize money and stuff. So that it was it was surprising to me that there was not, so it wasn't surprising that there was not more of an edge to Federer. I mean, I years ago, I had to write a, an article for the Age uh, newspaper in Melbourne and they wanted somebody, and they, they did, none of their staff wanted to write this, but they asked someone from outside, i.e. me, to write a piece about, you know, what's Federer really like? Is he really that nice? Has he got an edge? And it took so much effort to try and find anyone who would say anything bad about him. And I think even the ones who, you know, pointed out little things that, that were not great, like Mary Carrillo talked about when he wore the, the 15 jacket straight after beating Andy Roddick at Wimbledon. Um, was number 15 already prepared um, and a lot of people at the time thought well you know does he really need to do this this is a bit too much um, and Mary said she thought it was a misstep so there were little things like that but mm -hmm. overall it, 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 of course it's, it's positive I mean it's the, the it wouldn't have been possible to write I wouldn't even have we wouldn't even have thought of the concept of writing the book about Federer if he didn't have 
such a positive impact on people around the world. I think it'd be a lot harder to write a, story, a book like that about someone who really, you know, sort of divided opinion. That would be that would, that would be equally interesting, but it would be it would be difficult. But yeah, it was it was pretty hard to find. And <laughs> and it, it it seems like the reason for that is personality because it's one thing as fans. Let's be honest, we watch these players on on television. Uh, fans around the world don't know these people as as human beings, and therefore their fandom is largely based on how they play tennis. But when you're talking to people who uh, were in Roger Federer's life on on a personal basis, like uh, uh, Marco Ciudinelli, for example, who knew him from childhood, th their perception of, of Roger is not about how he plays tennis. It is about personality. I'm, I'm curious, though, how the personality, in your eyes, created the player. Like, what's the marriage between what Federer is as a as a human and how that affected what he became and was able to do as a tennis player? Do you know That's what I mean? Question. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, <clears throat> I, I've always thought that players' uh, playing style basically mirrors their, their personality. It's very hard to play against type. Although I do think, and I actually ended up writing something for the New York Times about this once, it, or maybe it was ESPN. The um, Marin Cilic is a case in point to me. He's a huge guy. I've always wondered why he just doesn't hit the hell out of the ball all the time. But to me, he's probably quite a sensible person inside and doesn't want to make mistakes. And so he reined it in too much. Whereas I think Federer as a youngster, as, as the, uh, the Swiss all talk about, you know, we've all heard the anecdotal stories about how volatile he was. And Sven Grunewald tells the good story about how he tried to sort of gently punish him um, when he threw his racket through a sponsor's uh, uh, sign at the back of the court. Um, I think that that the sort of volatility in his game that you saw as a teenager is is his personality. But you know, you mature. Players mature. So his personality, in terms of the aesthetics, he loved. He loved everything about being number one. Didn't he? he loved everything about being the man in in the sport. And it sort of went along with his game. He hit the most beautiful shots. He hit unbelievable shots that you couldn't even dream of and when when you're talking about the way the personality matches what's on court i think the two chapters with uh the two super fans that we spoke to um they sort of give you a good idea of what he was like even to people who has no reason you know he would never mix with or would never meet those kind of people in normal life but because of his tennis he did and yet he remembered their name he always came up with something interesting to say to them, a little bit like he did in press with, with us, always thought about the question, always came up with something a little bit different, even though he'd been asked it millions of times before. Um, I guess there's a lot of good parenting in there in terms of his personality. Um, you know, there, it's no way, it's, it's no surprise. You know, anyone who is that way has been well brought up and, you know, he sort of, everything was well managed. It, there were very few missteps along the way so uh, yeah in terms of personality i think his game mirrors his personality in terms of aesthetically pleasing you know of course he's got an edge every champion's got an edge but i think i think the two match i have a question about your opinion on the end of his career you've got a pretty good picture now of who this guy was you've talked to all these people did all these interviews 
um, is he going to be satisfied with the way it all ended? I mean, it's really hard to know for sure. I mean, I saw him at the Labour Cup, so that was very much in the in the moment of, of the end. Uh, and he was incredible in the build-up to it. He did so many interviews. It's a joke. I think he spoke to everyone who was there in one form or other, whether it was in a group or on their own. Um, and he definitely enjoyed the ending. It probably couldn't have been any better. But I guess, I mean, he wouldn't be, I, I'm sure that he would not, he, there are things about the end that he won't like. He won't like that he lost a six-love set at Wimbledon, where he owned the place. Uh, where the last time he walked off the court as a player, he lost six-love. I think that would, that would be great. Um, he won't like that he was not able to go out on his own terms. I don't think any athlete enjoys that. You know, he would feel, I mean, in 2019, he was still playing incredible tennis, should have argued, you know, had two point match points to win Wimbledon again. Um, so there's not that much difference in terms of age, et cetera, at that age. But, but then again, I think once he realised that the knee was just not up to it, then there's no sort of second guessing it's not like he lost or he was losing matches that he shouldn't have lost anymore. He just couldn't do it physically. And even now, you know, that knee is not ready. It's not ready to go skiing properly. It's not ready yeah. to, you know, play the exhibitions haven't been lined up yet. So I'm, I'm sure that it's going to take a bit of time. I'm sure he'll miss it a lot, but I'm sure he'll be around tennis too. And, you know, there's already talked about him popping into Wimbledon to do a bit of analysis and commentary. Um, he'll, he, he'll be really missed and, but I, I don't think he will. I think I think he's come to terms with it. I think I think he must have done. But it helps that there was an injury in the end. What about the Grand Slam tally? Yeah, I mean, what what can he do about it? I suppose once he, I mean, I'm, he, I'm sure he would have loved to win more than anyone else. But um, he can't influence it. He can't do it anymore. What he probably should have won 2019 Wimbledon. So that would have been one more. But Rafa and Novak would have overtaken him anyway, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure that bothers him too much. There are probably some. There are plenty of records around that he still owns for now, for now at least. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this question comes in from Joel Drucker, our third host. Uh, what are one or two of your most memorable Federer, Federer interview moments, whether it be at a press conference or in a one-on-one -on -one situation? I interviewed Roger uh, on top of Nike Town in New York in about 2007. It was when uh, Tim Henman was about to retire. And he, it was, it was interesting. It was just between times when Federer was not with IMG uh, and he wasn't yet with Tony, a godstick on his own. Yeah, Mirka was handling everything, his wife. So she was in the background, just on the phone, uh, and scribbling notes, doing stuff while we were talking. And he he was great. So it was a normal interview. I did it. I think I was doing it for Reuters at the time. So we covered lots of subjects, US Open uh, coming up at the time. But Tim Henman was also retiring. And as a British journalist, I and as a freelance, you're always thinking about different stories you can get out of one interview, you know, and how you can make as much money and get as much publicity out of it. So we got, I'd done all the questions I needed from Roger himself, but then I said, uh, oh, you, you know, you're pretty good friends with Tim Henman. Um, have you spoken to him about his impending retirement? Because it had just been announced. And uh, he sort of looked at me and, you know, remembered that I was British. You could see it going through his mind, his mind ticking over. What's he, what does he want here? Oh, okay. 
So he said, yeah, I, I texted him yesterday and uh, we're going to hit, we're going to practice before the US Open together. And, um, you know, and then I'll sort of help him towards his retirement. And that was enough to go in a, in a tabloid newspaper, a good, you know, uh, daily newspaper at home in Britain on the front, on the back page of the sports section. And he knew that, you know, he knew the impact his words would have. So I always, I always enjoyed that kind of thing. He was brilliant for uh, if you were writing a feature piece, so not a match report or anything, but you have a general idea and you, you've spoken to a few players along the way, but you need a big name at the top to make it interesting or to, to draw people's attention in. He was fantastic for that. So you would just get everything else done, go to him again. He would just sort of sum up what was happening and, and figure out what you were looking for and, and, and give it some real thought and give you an answer. And because it was him, it carried such an impact. So I always enjoyed whether it was one-on-ones or press conferences with him because he, he just he just always tried to give an answer that was different to the last one he'd given when he was asked the last the same question you know two weeks before he must have done I mean I want I, I wonder whether we could find out how many interviews he's done at some stage it must be you know well in the thousands in terms of just pure press conferences so you know for him not to get really bored and remember he was doing it in three languages one after the other English, uh, French and Swiss German. You know, it's, it's incredible that he didn't get really bored. There were a couple of times he snapped a little bit when he was really angry after losing the match that he shouldn't have done. But you understand that because all players do that. Um, but he still eventually comes around and gives you good answers. So I was always, whenever you left the room after a press conference or an interview or a group interview with Federer, you always thought, you know, that was really interesting. He, he felt like he was talking to you and not just everyone, um, which is a real gift, I think. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at newbalance.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I do want to ask about uh, the, the tennis itself, and the the other question that Joel put at, put in is how uh, how from f- the way Federer plays can a recreational player learn and uh, attempt some of those things? And I kind of want to also add in, I mean the the actual connection that the way he played tennis made with with his supporters and, and his fans in your in your series of interviews. How much was it about about what was actually going on between the lines that drew people to Federer in a in a different and unique way? I mean, there's no question that that played a big part. I think if he'd have been a boring, um, you know, moonballer, let's say, then people would not have been as attracted to him. People he played shots people hadn't thought of before. You know, I'm not talking about the saber because. Plenty of people have tried that sort of thing before. 
but you know he would come up with unbelievable angles or you know the famous smash back off the Andy Roddick smash uh, which you can look up on YouTube I think he made people gasp at some of the things he did like oh follies um, you know and the, the sheer enjoyment in his face that you would see when he hit a shot like that I think that's what comes across to people when they're watching you know if, if somebody's just pretty stone-faced you don't you don't build that rapport with the player, but he clearly loved playing great shots and, uh, you know, and loved the way he played. I, I think in terms of whether what you, what you see on courts, you can replicate. I mean, there are a lot of people in the book. There's a sort of growing theme about don't try and copy Roger Federer because you're not going to be able to do it. You know, you start thinking, oh, I'll, I'll just do this. And, uh, and it might work once or twice, but it, it won't work because you're not as good as him. Um, but I'm sure there are there are things about being you know just being calm under pressure and treating each point the same and just playing. Oh, he he always looked to me like he played within himself, but he was playing on the edge at the same time, and that's that's a real art art form. You know, he didn't look rushed at any stage. But if you remember, you know that lots of people have analysed the way he moved along the court and the stillness of his head as he moved across the baseline. That was always a a great thing to watch so i mean there are little things that people recreational players can definitely get from watching federer um but i, I think the the sheer joy he took in hitting outrageous shots um is something that made the fans warm to him even more you talk to a lot of uh current professionals i just want to take this to to uh indian wells if that's all right yeah. uh, Car carlos alcaraz the number one seed as Alcaraz came up, there was kind of a rush from everyone to say, oh, he plays like Federer, oh, he plays like Djokovic, he plays like Nadal. And we, we were hearing all three. Uh, it was kind of fascinating. I, I'd love your take on what part of Federer you see in Alcaraz, but also uh, just talking to younger younger professionals. You talked to Stefanos Tsitsipas, to name one, uh, who, who looked up to Federer. What is the, I'll use the title of the book, The Roger Federer Effect, on this next generation of players and if you could kind of bring that to, to india wells as well i think he inspired those players uh, to play the game that's what matteo berrettini said you know he watched federer and he wanted to be like him that's why he hits a one-handed backhand that's why he hits that slice uh Pass was the same he didn't want to hit a two-hander because federer played with this beautiful one-hander that obviously wasn't as good as his forehand but became a massive shot later in his career and the variety in it with the slice was was so impressive but I think a lot of people saw the way Federer played and thought I would like to be like that that's what I want to do and it you know it's it's not easy to play tennis tennis is not an easy game at all not an easy sport to be good at and so for for any of these players to try and follow Federer um, was a tall order but I think that's what he he made them want to play like him and to and to be to enjoy the game the way that he enjoyed it was probably what they were inspired by most to come back around to Alcaraz I think what Alcaraz shares with Federer most and you know Alcaraz is Federer was his hero wasn't it? I think that it's the um the intuitive uh desire to take the initiative in every single rally you know it's there's no point. He's, he did, even though he plays long rallies because he's young and he, he's happy to tear around the court and leg it and do whatever he needs to do. He, he wants to take the initiative. He wants to attack. 
uh, and he can do it from defence immediately like Federer can. Turning defence into attack um, is something he's very good at. And I think there's, there's just nothing in his brain that says, let's just rally here. I'll wait for my opportunity and see what happens. I'm going to take the initiative. Sits and passes the same. You know, he's another one. He wants the, he wants the match on his racket. Um, whereas other players are happy to sort of, you know, be a little bit more defensive, sort of. And it's not maybe defensive is not the right word, but more patient, more just wait for a little bit uh, longer before pulling the trigger. And I think these younger players see Federer and see the way that he took matches by the scruff of the neck uh, and realise that that's something something special. I mean, even Nick Kyrgios, who we, we didn't get to speak to, uh, we tried, but we will try again if we get to update the book. Kyrgios has spoken about how no one made him look more more of a fool on court than Federer. He just take the match away from him. And I think someone like Alcaraz can do that as well. And as he as he progresses, hopefully he stays relatively injury free in his career. As he uh, progresses, he's going to be more and more aggressive like that. You know, thinking about Indian Wells, how it's kind of like the convention or the the gathering point for a lot of business interests in tennis and and, uh, you know, Tennis Channel will shoot its bag checks for the year and their sponsor obligations. And, and it's kind of a meeting of the minds of tennis. Um, it, it makes me think of what Roger is going to do in the next phase of his life. And this is probably the biggest change or transition that he's ever, maybe outside of having children, that he's ever experienced. Um, and he's going to have to learn how to navigate that. And it's it's not going to be easy for him. If you had a guess, and I won't hold you to this, um, what do you think he'll do? I mean, I think in the early, I can't imagine him being a sort of, you know, week in, week out coach of anything. I can't see that. Not yet, anyway. I mean, maybe once his kids have grown up and moved away, then maybe he might fancy it. Um, I think he will get involved with mentoring young Swiss players in a different way. You know, maybe they come to him to train, and that a little bit like Agassi and Graf, the, the way that uh, some players rock up there on invitation only, of course, um, <laughs> and get and get a hell of a lot, hell of a lot out of that. I think he'll be active with his foundation, the Roger Federer Foundation, which is for underprivileged children in in Africa. Because um, obviously, with his mum in connection with his South African mother. Uh, so I think he'll there'll be the first things in his mind. But I imagine, I mean, he's going to be in demand, isn't he? He's going to have a lot of requests, a lot of people wanting him to get involved in business. Does he Does he really want to get, you know, to become sort of an investor in businesses? I, I, I somehow doubt that. I mean, what's the point? He's got enough money anyway. He earns seemingly $100 million without playing every year anyway. Um, I think he'll want to make a difference, though, whatever he does, whether it's his foundation or whether it's with young Swiss tennis players, um, he'll want to be involved. He, I can't, even though I don't see him being a coach week in, week out, I, he'll be around tennis. I think he'll be accessible because he knows, I mean, when we were talking to him at the Labour Cup, he, he said, you know, maybe it'll just be like, I'll, I'll pop in somewhere one week and then I'll talk, to, I'll talk to whoever wants to talk to me because I know that when Roger says something, you know, blah, 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 it's important or it will be seen as important and have some value. So I hope that he is accessible. I hope he doesn't sort of do a beyond Borg and disappear for 20 years. Um, I, I think he'll be around tennis. I think he'll miss it too much otherwise. 
I agree. And and he did say right on his farewell tour that he wasn't going to disappear on us. Uh, yeah. And he'll play. He'll play. I shouldn't call week. it a farewell tour. Really, a farewell stop at the yeah. Labor Cup, more more so than a tour. Uh, okay, let's go to uh, our colleague Sasha Osmo interviewed Goran Ivanisevic for tennis majors. Really good in depth chat um, as always. And I'll just give three kind of general takeaways, Simon, whatever grabs you, whatever you think is more interesting, just take it and run with it. So the first thing is apparently Novak found out about the ruling on the US, uh, not letting him in, at least for Indian Wells, before the Medvedev match. And it was, it's Goran's opinion that that was weighing on his mind while he was playing uh, Daniil Medvedev. Uh, the second thing is that they have not fully given up on playing Miami. They would still like to play Miami. And uh, if if anything changes, they're still open to that. Uh, then there, there were some great details about Novak's attitude uh, on the practice court that really struck me. Like he was practicing with, with FAA and Felix was hitting 220 uh kilometer per hour so that would be like 135 mile per hour serves right on the corner and he would go to goron and be like what am i doing wrong i'm not returning it so uh it was it was an excellent uh it was an excellent little little interview there simon what did you find most interesting yeah that that stuff the practice court stuff is really interesting because it's a big contrast isn't it to the way Federer trained during tournaments i mean he mm -hmm. trained very hard outside of tournaments but at tournaments i mean you know uh, you or i could have had a hit with him and he would have been fine with it it just, he only needed 10 minutes or 15 minutes and got on with it. Nadal plays at 100 miles an hour, just smashing the ball as hard as he can. Um, but Djokovic, yeah, clearly he, he's such a perfectionist and he thinks he should be able to get every serve back. He's the best returner in the world after all. So yeah, to hear him get annoyed at being aced by uh, massive serves is, is quite funny. Um, I, the, the, not the, hearing the visa news before the Medvedev match is interesting. The timing of it is interesting, isn't it? Because that was that before... The USTA said they hope to see him in Indian Wells and Miami. Um, so that's a, that's intriguing. Um, you know, we don't know for sure. Um, I, he, you know, according to uh, Goran, you know, it's still, Nadal's still the big focus at Roland Garros. That makes absolute sense. Um, and it'll still take an enormous effort from Novak to get the better of Rafa if he's fit in Paris. But yeah, it's just, I mean, I think Ivanisevic still is still surprised by Djokovic, which is interesting given everything he's achieved. Djokovic, you know, he's 35 going on 36 and he continues to set all sorts of records and yet still he's surprising his coach, which, you know, is I suppose is a, an indicator of just how good he is. I like that Novak tried. He tried to appeal to the Department of Homeland Security. He he jumped through the hoops to try to make an effort to get over here. That says a lot about a guy this at this stage of his career who really doesn't need to play the Sunshine Slam. Um, it, I highly doubt that it's going to work out for Miami because the governor of Florida has gotten involved and he and the president of the United States are their political enemies. So for Ron DeSantis to try to make an appeal to President Biden, I really don't think that it's going to happen. And in this country, as as 
around the world, we have kind of bigger fish to fry than whether Novak can get in to play the Miami Open. But the good news is that this um, regulation is going to sunset in May, and presumably, knock wood, he'll be able to come back for the U.S. Open, and that that will be great to see him. Um, you know, my my question to you, Simon, since you're, you know, on the, the cusp of the tour and all that, is um, how you see the clay court season playing out? Well, I think basically all of it depends on the fitness of Nadal. If, uh, if Rafa is 100% fit, um, then he will be the man to beat the Roland Garros, no question. Um, you know, he does need time to hit to sort of work himself up to top form. So if he comes back in Monte Carlo, as, as I hope, um, then, you know, you would imagine that he would be fully fit by then. Uh, if he comes back a bit later, maybe in Madrid, then he's pushing it. Um, and Djokovic, you know, what was interesting, I thought, with Goran, is he said also that if if Novak did get to play Miami, that might not be the best thing for the clay court season because the time between the two tournaments is so small. Um, and it is pretty hard to go from one to the other and adjust on surfaces and stuff. So maybe it will be better for Novak in terms of his clay court season if he doesn't play Miami. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's really it's really interesting. In in many ways, there should be you know we should be talking about Alcaraz, we should be talking about Sitsipas, we should be talking about the others who have great clay court games and who can go a long way. But basically, it comes down to Novak and Rafa. You know, still, that's, that's it. Still. still, you know, their match last year in Paris was unbelievable. Um, and whoever gets through, you know, if they're in the same half, whoever gets through it, you take to be the, the favourite again to win the title. And, you know, even in their late 30s, they're still the ones to beat. It, it's fascinating. I, mean, I think you, you would imagine if, Al, if Alcaraz is fully fit, then it might be a bit different this year. It might be different. But okay. still, could he beat, could he beat both of them? I, I, I don't know. Not sure. I would take, I would, I'd still take Nadal to win the French. That would be my bet right now, but it all depends on his fitness. Yeah, right, right there with you. Like, if Nadal and Djokovic have their legs under them, they are still the best players. They've shown that statistically, it was true even last year in, in 2022. And uh, yeah, it'll be fascinating to see Nadal come back and Carlos Alcaraz, I think, at the ceiling, at the highest capabilities, is the only person who could possibly disrupt that yep. enjoy indian well simon this was so much fun having you on uh you did a, a terrific job uh with simon graff on the roger federer effect and uh we appreciate this opportunity to chat well thanks so much for having me it's been nice to talk about it's uh you know a, lo a lot of fun to write and a lot of fun to talk about and thanks again